this Halloween. No, that's impossible. Don't get caught. Did you check the basement or the bedroom? Without the perfect thing. They're both out. To treat every taste. Well, that's it. We're out of Fanta. This Halloween, don't live with the horror of being without Fanta. Get yours today. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese and Joe. This is a first for us. We have on a guy who has his own endorsement deal with Puma. And he's the first sports writer having on the show with us as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, longtime sports reporter of the tri-state area. Uh, started actually uh, at the Connecticut Post before he moved on to New York Post. He's been the Mets beat writer now for well over a decade. Uh, really, really excited to have him on. I know you are, uh, being you're a huge Mets fan. So let's get to it. Uh, Mr. Mike Puma. Mike, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing today? We are doing good. So I alluded to your, your endorsement deal with Puma. I, I remember you sent out a tweet maybe two spring trainings ago. Was it Alonzo or was it Noah Syndergaard who uh, pointed that out to you? Uh, oh, it's Alonzo who's always on my case uh, when I, I don't have my Puma sneakers. I, I do have a pair of Pumas that uh, I sometimes wear and I, I hadn't worn them since I was a kid and I got a pair uh, a year or two ago and now, whenever I, I, I don't wear them, I, I catch hell from Pete Alonzo about it. <laughs> so, Alonzo, <laughs> when you're wearing Nikes, Alonzo's like, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah. yeah, or if, if I'm wearing regular shoes, he doesn't want to see that either. <laughs> you're, basically a, you're basically a walking billboard uh, to, to him, <laughs> which is funny. So, Mike, we appreciate you coming on here. We uh, want to do for, first briefly do what we do with all our guests and walk through your career. So, when did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in either journalism or sports? Was it when you were at Fordham or was it earlier than that? Yeah, I was probably before that, probably going back to seventh, eighth grade. Uh, I kind of knew uh, yeah, I, I wanted to go into broadcasting. You know, I, I grew up in the 80s watching uh, Vin Scully on the game of the week and, uh, you know, Dick Enberg, and Pat Summerall, all those guys. And that's the route I wanted to go. And uh you know, I did broadcasting at Fordham at, at WFUV there, which has launched so many, um, you know, great careers. If you look at Michael Kay and Mike Breen, uh, Chris Carino does the Brooklyn Nets, was uh, actually my broadcast partner at Fordham. Um, but, it, you know, after school, I, I, I dabbled in different things. I was at uh, ESPN Radio when they were first getting started in 1992. And then uh, I did some local play-by-play up in Connecticut and uh, – I took a newspaper job, a part-time newspaper job, not really knowing anything about print journalism, but, uh, you know, the sports editor hired me because I had a good knowledge of local sports and thought I could be an asset to the department. So that, that was my um, introduction to sports journalism in Waterbury, Connecticut, the Waterbury Republican American. Um, I found out I kind of liked that better than the broadcast side. So I, 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 uh, I stuck with that and, uh, I was there five years, covered UConn women's basketball. Then went to, as you mentioned, I went to the Connecticut, Connecticut Post, uh, and that's where I that's where I uh, got my first exposure to covering Major League Baseball. Nineteen ninety eight uh, was my first year, and that uh, 
it's kind of the New York guy did the Yankees and the Mets uh, kind of uh, went back and forth between the two and uh, got to the New York post in 2007. And I've been on the uh, Mets beat. This will be uh, season 12 coming up on the Mets beat. Time flies. Yeah. Time does fly. Uh, I remember. So I went to, to Marist college. I went up to Poughkeepsie. Okay. Was a graduate of, of St. John's. So we both come from uh, communications-oriented programs. We wanted to do sports for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're doing it now, so our passion is here, just like you. Uh, I remember when I was at college, uh, we had a special uh, meeting, and Mike Breen came up to to see the school, and we got to ask him questions and stuff. And uh, he related his relationship with Michael K, his personal relationship, and uh, what Fordham was able to afford to him. So. Uh, it's really great that you came from that. It seems like a factory now for a lot of really local sports people. Uh, what was your favorite memory when you went to Fordham? Cause I have to ask, cause I, you know, obviously I, I met Mike Green uh, and what were your favorite early memories uh, when you were living in Connecticut and you were working in Waterbury and you were working for the Connecticut post uh, and what uh, specific things or specific events or, or specific uh, games uh, that you got to do uh, is there anything that sticks out in your mind from, from your early years? Well, you mentioned Fordham. I mean, for me, uh, it was a big thrill. To, the last time Fordham went to the NCAA tournament in bat, men's basketball, uh, it was my senior year at Fordham, 1992. It's, I mean, unbelievable. They, they haven't been back there since. So that was fun for, uh, you know, that was fun for me being uh, – part of that I did a lot of broadcasts that was my senior year and I, I did the, a lot of games with Chris Carino that year um looking back on that um that 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 was probably the highlight uh, at Fordham and then after that working up in Connecticut uh you know I, I look back at that as maybe the most fun I've, I've ever had in in my career was just getting started out being the the local guy in Waterbury being the high school uh reporter it was just um it's just hard to describe. It, it, it was just so much fun that you you'd go out to the games and people would be generally be happy to see you knew who you were. Um, the, the, the players, the, the kids love talking to you. They love seeing their name in the paper. Uh, you know, it's a different vibe than the, the pro beat, you know, it's, it's uh, it was a lot, it, it was a lot of fun getting started up in Connecticut and then uh, going to cover the UConn women's team right after they had won their first national championship. And now they win them all the time. And <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. And working at the Connecticut post, uh, uh, you know, being uh, 98, when I, I started covering baseball, that was the, the Yankees 125 win season. And uh, Bobby Valentine was, you know, a, a year and a half into his managerial uh, tenure. And he, you know, he was a local guy who was Stanford, Connecticut guy. So that was kind of a big deal for us at the Connecticut Post, and uh, and and you know Valentine just made everything so exciting. He was uh, he, he's as colorful a personality as New York baseball's ever had, you know. So yeah, I got I, to meet him too. Really, really, yeah. really great guy. So I just look at those years as just uh, mostly a lot of fun. Now it's more business like, you know, but back those uh, years in the '90s uh, was just fun. So, Mike, while you're at the Connecticut Post, you're also doing some work for ESPN Classic as a researcher. What was that like and what kind of projects were you working on? Because when I see ESPN Classic, I remember just they're showing the games or 
you had the amazing show Cheap Seats. So I'm curious to know what programs you were working on. Yeah, Cheap you mentioned Cheap Seats. That was one of the shows. And I was kind of a researcher, fact checker. So they would uh, send me the, 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 the scripts for the shows ahead of time just to look through them, to, to look for mistakes. And the, the big project at the time uh, was their Sports Century series, which started right around the end of the, you know, 1999, 2000, going into the new century, where they profiled the top, you know, uh, I think it started as the top 50 athletes of the century. And then they, they expanded it after, after they had the countdown from 50 to one that they, they did more shows. They, I think they added another 50 shows where they did profiles. Of, and those were so well done, uh, researched and produced. And uh, I had a lot of fun working on those shows. So I would write a lot of the bios for the uh, website that, corresponded with the show they were doing say they were doing a show on frank gifford so i would i would write um, a 2000 word biography on frank gifford's life for the website or along those lines i did i did a couple of dozen of those vince lombardi uh i'm trying to think of some of the other ones i did uh, john wooden uh it was that was a lot of fun and just being just being part of something as big as that project and uh because I, I had started, as I mentioned, at ESPN Radio in the early 90s when they were first getting started. So that that kind of uh, got my toe immersed into those waters, making some contacts uh, up in Bristol. And, uh, you know, when ESPN Radio first started, it was just weekends. It was Saturdays and Sundays. So uh, that's kind of why I had to find the uh, other other job on the side because I was, I was only part-time uh, – part-time employee there Saturdays and Sundays when, when the programming was on the air. So Friday, you know, Monday through Friday, I had to find something else to do. And that, that's kind of what uh, pushed me to spreading uh, my wings a little bit and ultimately uh, ended, ended up on the print side. Yeah. It's crazy to think that at any point there were station, there were sports radio stations that weren't 24 seven sports, but you know, the industry has yeah. changed greatly. Uh, one of the shows I remember on ESPN Classic was the top five reasons you can't blame with Brian Kenny. Uh, Brian Kenny, of course, now hosts MLB Now on uh, MLB Network. And you know, I, I, I was talking to, to some people and said you were going to come on. And we had uh, Adnan Verk, who's at MLB Network, who is occasionally on the, the MLB Now show. I think we need to get you on that show. We'll start the campaign somehow. And he, he said he absolutely loved he loves your Twitter and he loved all of your Godfather references to, to Sandy Alderson and Steve Cohen <laughs> coming and cleaning that. So he wanted me to relay that message. <laughs> That's he great. That's Twitter. funny because uh, I was reading um, our, my colleague Steve Serby did a Q&A with uh, Steve Cohen the other day that ran in the post and and uh, Cohen made reference his favorite movies, The Godfather. So yeah, there's a, <laughs> the Godfather references are, are, are always uh, popular. <laughs> Yeah, and Mike, do you do you personally shop in the gourmet section, or you're looking more at the the bargain hunter and meat and potatoes? Yeah, uh, I th I think I'm more in the bread aisle and maybe getting some yogurt or something like that. <laughs> Did you think that once you asked Sandy Olson that in his introductory press conference that that was going to continue to be something all off season? Everyone's going to be saying on all the networks. Well, yeah, you know it's funny because. This goes back years and years too of going to the GM meetings with with Scott Boris, and uh, it probably goes back about eight or nine years. 
where you know, Boris one year made just an offhanded remark about the, the, the supermarket and which aisle the met. And it, it turned into a yearly tradition, kind of became a, a, a kind of a joke along the way. And, and you know, now Boris uh, prepares ahead of time because he knows, you know, usually me that's going to ask him, you know, where are the Mets shop? You know, this year there were no GM meetings because of the pandemic. So I actually texted Boris uh, and said, you know, what aisle – uh, are, are the Mets shop and he gave I'm, I'm trying to remember what the response it, it was uh, uh, I'd have to I have to look back but what the response was it was something that didn't make a lot of sense but <laughs> you know and I, so I think you know Sandy Alderson uh, is kind of in on the in on the joke a little bit and comes to expect it so uh, I, I think he was probably prepared ahead of time for the question but it, you know it it, it it's 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 fun and it's a good analogy when you, you think about the supermarket. I'm trying to think. One year the uh, Mets were shopping in the uh, fruit and nuts section when they didn't have a lot of money to spend. You know now they're in the uh, gourmet aisle and Boris wanted them in the meat aisle. And they... <laughs> uh, I want to talk about your star with the with the New York Post, but real quick on on you know we're talking the winter meetings and whatnot happening how was that for you i'm sure usually every december for the past you know 13 years you're heading on the plane you're with all your your networking you're with all the, the fellow writers and you're getting the scoops you're getting all the inside information easy access to everybody scott boris has his two-hour you know impromptu press conference in the hotel lobby which is always great and you're yeah. tweeting that out but how was this experience this year, the virtual winter meetings in which essentially nothing happened and you were you know, trying to get all the stories from home? Yeah, it, it's been a lot different and a lot more difficult to do the job and a lot less, uh, you, you know, after 11, you know, 12, this will be my 12th season. After doing it for so long, you get into these natural biorhythms where you expect, okay, you know, February it's February 12th. I'm, I'm going to be going to spring training. And then, you know, and, um, it's, it's April 1st, it's opening day. And, you know, it's, it's October, it's the playoffs and November, the GM meetings, December, the winter meeting. Now everything, everything gets upended and you wake up every day and you're not quite sure, you know, what time of year it is or, or it, it's just been a different year for everybody. Um, and yeah, this winter has been, exceptionally slow um but yeah trying to make heads or tails of what's going on has only been that much more difficult uh without those meetings and without the face-to-face contact and uh you know there's only so many zoom calls you can do and you know a lot of this job is about personal relationships and and you don't get that sitting in front of a, a computer monitor yeah no doubt about it Maybe it's time for another Puma mailbag off-season edition. <laughs> I did enough of those to keep me busy over the summer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I'm sure if you didn't, everyone's going to ask you the same questions. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to some of that stuff. But I'm curious, uh, you know, how did you find out about the opening with the New York Post? And what was the uh, application process and degree process like in order to get that position? Well, so this was uh, 2006 when I got hired it was the winter 2007 and uh, Andrew Marchand had been at the post then was leaving um, and uh, now he's since rejoined us at the post after going to ESPN he's our our uh, our our media reporter was leaving but 
Uh, he had mentioned to me on his way out that uh, he was departing and uh, there was an opening at the post. And I had been at uh, the Connecticut Post at that point for close to 10 years. And I'd been, so I'd been the New York guy. I, I got to know a lot of people uh, bouncing around from the Jets and the uh, Mets, the Yankees, Giants. So uh, when this, uh, when, when Martian was leaving the post, he, he said, you know what? He was leaving on good, good terms. He said, I'm going to mention to the sports editor, I think you'd be a, a, a good fit here. And then um, Mike Vaccaro, our lead columnist at the post had been there a few years already. And I had known him and he was, uh, he, he thought I was a good fit for the post. So it's kind of momentum kind of built from uh, within the staff of people recommending me uh, for the opening. It was a general assignment opening, which meant uh, I'd be bouncing around doing a lot of different things, which kind of fit, you know, which was fine because I, I was used to that. Uh, Cause that was kind of my role when I was working at the Connecticut post, I was bouncing from football to baseball and, in you know, the off, I was doing college basketball in the off season, uh, did, did a lot of Fairfield university basketball in the Mac back then. I did, I covered them for seven years uh, every winter and did some Yukon in between uh, in, in the NCAA tournament, the big East tournament. So I, I had, I had done golf too. So I, I had done a lot of different stuff. So I think that appealed to them. So, um, so I got the job in 2007 and spent three, yeah, it was about three years as a, a general assignment. And I was mainly a uh, backup on the Yankees and Mets was where most of my assignments were coming. And then um, when the Mets beat opened after the 09 season, uh, they gave it to me. Yeah. It's great that you mentioned Vicaro. Obviously we've been huge readers of him for a long time. Uh, I wanted to ask you, about all your other colleagues who work at the Post, because uh, I still think uh, as much as the newspaper industry is kind of slowly deteriorating, I still think that there's a prominent uh, desire in the New York market for people to, to read sports writing. And I think that goes along with you and uh, Vicaro, uh, definitely Mark Berman, Larry Brooks. A lot of people still read those people. What is your relationship with those guys? Uh, is it kind of a close-knit mentality at the post? Do you guys understand uh, not so much that your backs are against the wall, but uh, what you guys are, are doing is something that a lot of other regions in the country, uh, their cities and their, their, their locales really, I guess, can't afford to, to, to do for them. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. New York is, we're lucky we live in the biggest media market in the world, but yeah, how is are. your relationship with those people? And, and how does that work on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, yeah. Now you mentioned a guy like Mark Berman. Now I, I used to see him from time to time when I was a general assignment guy, because I would, I would be a sidebar guy at the Knicks games with him or at the garden. Now I probably haven't seen Berman in close to a decade because we our paths <laughs> just don't cross, you know, uh, Larry Brooks. I do see because he comes out and does baseball columns uh, from time to time. Uh, you know, when hot, in the off season for hockey and, and Larry is, you know, hockey hall of famer and uh, just guy with a world of experience, talented writer, uh, you know, Steve Serby, another guy who's been at the post forever. And, you know, I look at him as part of the identity of the post going back. I, I grew up reading Serby, you know, back, I started reading the New York post probably about 1980, 81, something like that. My dad 
would bring it home from work. And, and Serby was a guy I read. Now to, you know, sometimes I, I, I looked to my left and there's Serby sitting right there and I'm working alongside of him all these years later. It's, it's a great feeling. Um, the Caro is, I, for my money, I don't, I don't know that there's a better sports columnist in the country than him. He's, he's an immensely talented guy, works hard, uh, knowledgeable. Uh, and the amazing thing about him is uh, he, he, his, he cranks out a column in 10 to 15 minutes, uh, on deadline, he, he's, he's a magician. You, you read it, you, you would think it was something he spent hours. Now, in his head, it, it, it's, it's been fermenting for, for hours as we go on. But for him to sit down and just go boom, boom, boom. And I'm envious of, of people who can do that, who could just sit down and crank something out in 10 or 15 minutes, and, it, and it's great work. I mean, it, he, he's, he's a special guy. Yeah, it's, it's definitely difficult to, to be able to, to crank something out. And I can only imagine, you know, especially when you're working on a deadline and the score changes the opposite way. And you got to just, <laughs> I mean, I always think about like when the, when the Falcons blew it to, against the Patriots, how everybody yeah. had to completely change their articles. Cause everybody already had their, their pile like, oh, 28 3, I'm done. Type it up. Uh, I'm ready. I'll watch the end of the game. Then bam, everything well, else. famous uh, early edition of the Boston Globe uh, that, that went to print, you know, with, in, with the headline, uh, you know, reflecting that the Patriots had lost because they had already, you know, it, it's amazing that got into print. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, when especially, uh, you know, especially when you get to the postseason and uh, and you're all the games are four hours and you're running up to midnight and past midnight and then the score changes in the ninth and it it, it, it can be hell on your stomach. <laughs> Mike, do you remember uh, a few years ago? The, the Mets were on the West Coast, and uh, I think it was like a 16-17 game that ended like 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning East Coast time. But what was that like for you? Uh, I, I remember that game well. It was uh, – yeah, the Mets went to San Francisco. It was a 15 – that was one of the longest days I've ever had on the job because um, the, Mets, the Mets had played in Milwaukee the previous day. And uh, so – and there were, you know, Milwaukee is a small city. There's not a lot of flights out of there. So they played Milwaukee on a Sunday. And I remember um, I couldn't get out of Milwaukee until Monday morning. And there had been a plane. And so they were playing in San Francisco on that Monday night. So I had to fly Monday morning. And only compounding matters. There had been a plane crash at uh, San Francisco International Airport. So, and one of the, one of the, um, so one of the runways was closed. So they were canceling flights left and right into San Francisco. So I had to, um, I had to re, you know, I had to rebook a flight. I couldn't get it. The closest I could get was into uh, Fresno, which is 180 miles from San Francisco. So I had to take uh, from Milwaukee. I, I, I'm trying to remember what the connection route was. I think I went from Milwaukee to Phoenix to Fresno, then rented a car and drove, you know, three and a half hours. I got there right as the clubhouse was opening, uh, you know, probably around quarter to four local time in San Francisco. You're exhausted because, uh, you know, I'd been up at, since five in the morning to, to get on the, the, the plane in Milwaukee and then driving three hours. And so you're already exhausted when you get to the ballpark. And then the game went uh, – the game went 15 innings. It ended at uh, 
uh, about twelve thirty local time, but it was you know it was like yeah it was like quarter it was actually quarter to one local time. It's quarter. And now it's Geico's motorcycle rules of the road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. What well, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where, Where is he? And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, Geico could save you 15% or more. Hear that? That's the sound of someone trying to steal your crypto. Every day, thousands of hackers online are doing the same. That's why Arculus uses air-gapped cold storage technology to protect your assets. Using our keycard and wallet app to form a protective barrier, Arculus insulates you from hackers and puts control of your digital assets back in your hands. Order the first truly air-gapped crypto wallet at GetArculus.com. to four back on uh, the East Coast. Um, and I remember, now I'm trying to remember what year this was. It had to be 2013 because Matt Harvey had a blister. And I remember after the game, trying to, you know, we're, we're trying to find Matt Harvey. You know, they play this 15 inning game and we find out that Matt, Matt Harvey had a blister and was, was going to miss a start or something like that. And it was, all hell was breaking loose after this 15 inning game, trying to f- find Matt Harvey. He didn't talk. I got back to, by the time I got back to the hotel that night, I had been up 24 straight hours from, uh, you know, when we left Milwaukee. And that that was one of, if not my longest, one of my longest days on the job. I I do remember that game well. And do you, do you and your, your, you know, your colleagues, do you guys hate the day games? Is it so tough the next morning to not only wake up, but then just to get the stories, people don't want to talk. And especially we've seen instances as of late where, you know, the Mets are landing at the next destination three or four o'clock in the morning and the schedule gets all out of whack. But yeah. what's the, you know, the daily well, grind? Well, the now? day games, yeah, you're not going to get great clubhouse access. Um, a lot of uh, day games, just because of what you mentioned, where uh, the team is landing at, at weird hours and what have you. And, uh, you know, I, I actually like the day games because it, it gives you more time to – you're not scrambling uh, on deadline as much and you, you got some time to think about things, but you know, yeah, yeah, it can be tough if you have a, a late night game, you know, the night before, and then you're getting up the next morning and getting to the ballpark at nine 30. Those, those can be tough turnarounds. Absolutely. So in your time with the post, uh, you know, there's been very significant time periods. Obviously, you first join right after the Mets lose the NLCS. I'm sure at spring training, everyone's thinking they're going to the World Series. You're there for 07 and 08 to collapse. Uh, you're there for the opening of City Field in 2009. And then, of course, 2015, they get Cespedes. They go to the World Series. And in between all that, you have Johan, Matt Harvey, DeGrom. In this whole time period, you've been with the Post. What has been your most memorable or most favorite uh, time period or stories to cover? Yeah, I think it had to be that whole run in 2015 to get to the World Series, just because, you know, it it came out of the blue. You're sitting there in mid-July and, um, you know, heading into the trade deadline, and you're like, yeah, this team team couldn't hit. I mean, you remember – 
just remember they'd go out and get these great pitching performances and they were losing, you know, two to one, three to two. They, they just couldn't generate any offense. And just all of a sudden, and it really started, you know, for my money, even before Cespedes, you go back those smaller trades that Sandy Alderson made getting uh, Kelly Johnson, Juan Uribe. Um, then they brought up Conforto and uh, then you go out and get Cespedes. And just that whole, tr- how quickly it transformed too, because you went from late July at the trade deadline where they look like this team that dead in the water. And within two to three weeks, they're looking like world beaters, you know, that, that Cespedes, you know, the Cespedes trade, that just looked like a completely different team and you, you didn't expect it. And I think that was, that was the fun part of it. And then that postseason. uh, you know, yeah, sweeping the NLCS was great in, in, in the World Series. But that Dodger series, for my, that, was, that was one of the great uh, all-time Mets postseason series, the National League Division Series. You had the, you know, you had the Utley breaking Ruben Tejada's leg. You had the drama going back uh, to L.A. for game five, and DeGrom wasn't sharp. And, you know, were they going to pull him out early? You had Syndergaard warming up about three or four times. Uh that and you know Murphy getting hot. That was just a great series, and so I, you know, I, I when I look back on these eleven seasons, that that's probably the highlight there. Santana no hitter. I was at that game. That was a night I normally would have been off because they were coming off of a road trip. And somehow I ended up uh, working that Friday night. A lot of the beat guys were off, and uh, I remember remember being sick. I had some kind of uh, had some kind of chest cold or something like that. I just felt awful that night. And then you look up in the sixth and seventh inning and you're like, wow, <laughs> what's going on here? And uh, so that whole thing was surreal to, to be at, at the first Mets no hitter. Um, I'm trying to think what else would stand out. Um, yeah. Th- those are probably, th- those are probably the, the, the two biggest things because, you know, I got on the beat in 2010 was the first season Jerry Manuel's last year. And that, that was just the be, kind of the beginning of the decline years, you know, they, they still had, they still had the stars then they still had Beltran. They still had Reyes, but by that next year, they were bringing in Terry Collins and really looking toward that rebuild where they were, uh, you know, stripping things down and, and looking toward the, the young pitching that was coming along the, with the hopes that it would uh, build back up. Yeah, my most memorable thing from that time period is uh, when uh, Adam Rubin, your colleague, got called out. I mean, that must have been a surreal press conference. Yeah, now that was 09. That was the year before I got on the beat. I was still uh, the backup guy, and I was off that day. So I, I wasn't there for that, but um, that that's one of the craziest craziest scenes of that era. I got I got a... I sh- I should mention, I got a book coming out in uh, April, If These Walls Could Talk, New York Mets. And I'm, I'm, bas- I'm touching on basically the 20 years I've been around the Mets, going back to when I was at the Connecticut Post. So it starts kind of in the Valentine era in 98 and goes right up through to the beginning of the Mickey Calloway era. And, yeah, the Adam Rubin uh, scene, you know, obviously – Tony Bernazard was was close to Omar Minaya at that point, and it, it it stung Omar Minaya to have to to fire Bernazard, and 
you know, he it it, it just overflowed in that press conference, the tension and uh, the emotion. So, uh, and uh, now Adam Rubin now has been uh, about four years removed from it. He's out at Stony Brook in uh, athletic communication. It seems to be having a, having a good time with that. Yeah, he was, he was great. He was a great beer reporter. Yep. And um, we, we appreciate his work. So Mike, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work some professional uh, events as, as press in, in the past, particularly like at MetLife Stadium or Madison Square Garden. And something I always enjoyed was, was the, the food in the press box. So I want to know what's your, what's your go-to, uh, you know, snack or meal during the game. And, you know, how did you, cause I know when I first did some games, I was just going crazy, but obviously you're doing a daily grind. You're in there every day. So how do you control your, how do you control yourself? Yeah, it's tough, <laughs> especially, you know, especially when you get uh, a, a little uh, deadline pressure and tension going there. Uh, you know, the best place, uh, the best place, and I think just about anybody who uh, who covers the National League would agree, the, the place that goes Philadelphia because the uh, the food room in Philadelphia is legendary. With they just have so many options, it's it's top notch food. But they they also have um, the ice cream there. They have an older gentleman, Frank, who's been there forever, and he's he's got you know six different vats of ice cream with different flavors. And the ice cream in, in Philadelphia is is pretty legendary. So that's that's kind of the go to spot. You know when you you know when you're going to Philadelphia that you don't have to seek out other options in the ballpark uh, for eating because there, there's going to be great food uh, in the, in the press dining room. Yeah. Great cheesesteaks. Uh, shout out to Jim's cheesesteaks. Yeah. My favorites. Yes. Great, great location. Yep. Uh, you mentioned before, I want to touch on this quick. You mentioned the Johan Santana no hitter. Great story of mine, really close friend of mine from high school. He was supposed to be at that game that night, but he wasn't because he was watching Steve Martin at the St. George Theater here on Staten Island. So, yeah, so he, diehard Met fan, organizations, never seen a no-hitter before, had tickets that night. I think he gave them up to watch, obviously, to, to go watch the great Steve Martin and the, the show in the theater, and and that didn't work out for him. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we always give him, you know, hell for it because, you know, you miss the opportunity, you miss a no-hitter. That's that's legitimately history. So yeah, I, I just want to, to throw, throw that in there. Uh, yeah, and I had uh, when I was at the Connecticut Post, I had seen uh, a couple of I had seen um, David Cohn's perfect game on uh, Yogi Berra Day, and I had actually the year before I had been off, and I was living in Stanford, Connecticut at the time. David Wells took a uh, the perfect game in the middle innings, so I, I got off my couch, jumped into the car, and raced down to Yankee Stadium. <laughs> and I actually got there for the final, I want to say five or six outs of Wells perfect game and was able to cover it for the paper. And uh, so, but since those two, I hadn't seen one until uh, Santana and then, um, and then let's see in 15, one I actually forgot about covering until, you know, years after the fact, I didn't realize it and because it was so anticlimactic. I was, I was at Max Scherzer's no hitter at City Field uh, against the Mets at the at the end of the uh, 15 season, but at that point there was you know so much excitement about the team going to the postseason and it, it was kind of meaningless and uh, and 
I had forgotten I actually covered another no-hitter, and it was Max Scherzer's against the Mets. Mike, uh, you know, something I just came to my mind here as we were talking about historic moments and, uh, you know, Philly cheesesteaks. I believe in 2014, the Mets set a record and ate 103 cheesesteaks in one day, shattering the record bucks in Philadelphia. Uh, I know you didn't write that article. It was uh, Mike uh, Workinov from the Star Ledger. But what do you remember about that? Uh, do you know anything about it? And how, much, only- how, much, how much of an effort did uh, Bartolo Colon put into that one? <laughs> the only thing I remember about that was, uh, I think it was Dave Racanello, who's a longtime bullpen catcher for the Mets, might have eaten the most out of anybody. Uh, and I, I wish I remember what the number was, but yeah, uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was one of those offbeat things. Uh, I'd like to get the yeah, I'd like to get the number on how many Cologne might have eaten. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's about all I remember about was that Racanello, the bullpen catcher, might have been the guy who uh, ate the most out of the out of the whole team. So you've been with the post covering the Mets, obviously at the top. We alluded to over ten years. Uh, so I wanted to ask you the most important people that you you've worked with through the years, and uh, could be close colleagues at the post. Uh, any types of relationships that you've developed with the players over the years? Because I feel like you ask any person who's very closely connected with the Mets or works in the Mets organization at this time or during this time period. And the first answer to me that I would imagine would come up would be somebody like David Wright. Obviously, David Wright is, you know, El Capitan, Captain America, you know, however you want to describe him, just very, very super class act on and off the field. I know a close friend of mine who, who's had the privilege of, of meeting him a couple of times through the year. So he's got to be great. Uh, you mentioned before uh, Pete Alonzo. I'm sure Pete Alonzo is great. Very, very class act too. Uh, probably does stuff, a lot of stuff off the field. Uh, keeps a consistent relationship with media and, and other people working in the media who are friends of yours. Uh, so who are those some of the closest people that you've gotten to work with over the years? And who are people that you've maintained relationships with uh, through your years? At the yeah, club? well, you know, starting my first year on the beat, that was that was a pretty good clubhouse because you had Jason Bay who was there now. He obviously had his troubles <laughs> playing for the team, but he he was great clubhouse presence, great you know stand up guy. You had Jeff Francoeur who was there, who's as funny as anybody I've ever covered. You know, just uh, total off the cuff, and I still uh, maintain contact with him to this day. I, I see him all the time because uh, he does the Braves TV broadcasts. So when we go to Atlanta or they come in the city field, you you see Frenchie around, um, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the top guys, uh, another guy, and they only had him for a year. Another guy who, who falls in that category, Michael Kadire, was just a great clubhouse guy, a guy uh, you could count on to tell you the truth was, was going to be at his locker, good times, bad times. Um, and, you know, it, it's, too bad how it worked out with him and that uh, he was at the end of the line uh, w- when he got here, but was certainly a, a strong leadership presence in the, in that 2015 clubhouse, right? Goes without saying, you know, captain for a reason. Uh, always, always at his locker, always uh, there to take accountability was, uh, you know, there were so many years back, 
when I uh, first started covering in 0708 before I was on the beat when I was at the post. Those uh, first couple of years, you know, Wright was still one of the young guys, but he was became one of the go-to guys for the media in a hurry because he was um, so accountable and, uh, you know, just, just had that it factor about him. And, uh, you know, Billy Wagner was another guy when I first got there, and I, I've maintained a good, pretty good relationship uh, with him over the years. Um, you know, he's, he talked to me extensively for my book. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of one of the last of that old school generation, you know, things, things have kind of changed in the last six, seven years where, you know, the vet used to be the veterans would give the, uh, the rookies a hard time. You don't see that as much anymore. I I think it's, it's, Right away, you know, a guy like Pete Alonzo comes in. He wasn't catching too much flack uh, from the veterans, and that's that's kind of changed over, you know, of what it was eight years ago where if you were a rookie, you kind of had to know your place a little bit. Um, you know, Terry Collins, uh, I think I miss him more every day <laughs> as Mets manager just as we go along because uh, as we go down, as we've gone along the line here, you, you, you're not going to get any – you're not going to see anybody like that anymore as far as the way he dealt with the media and straightforward, uh, honest to a fault. You uh, I always remember we got a clubhouse full of guys in Las Vegas ready to come take your, take their jobs. One of the best friends. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Luis Rojas is going to say that anytime soon, you know, uh, Terry, Terry was the last of that breed and, uh, he lasted, you know, as long as he did set seven full seasons, longest tenured manager in Mets history. And, and part of that was because he could deal with the media so well, you know, uh, he just, you know, you have guys like Jim Leland, you know, LaRusso's back, you know, now LaRusso's back with the White Sox. He, he certainly fits that mold and, uh, there's still a cut. There's still a couple of guys left. Uh, Terry Francona kind of fits the mold a little bit. Got your Buck Showalter back in the Buck Showalter, you know. But for the most part, the new breed of managers are, are, are nothing like Terry Collins. Mike, I want to ask you about the new beat, the new breed of writers, uh, and and your career here. I got I think Twitter has really changed the game here because if you got to break something. I'm guessing now you're putting it out on Twitter because you got to be first. Whereas in the past, you probably call up the the news desk and say, "Hey, yeah. we got this breaking news." So we just want to know what your thoughts on how the media industry has changed from that perspective. Yeah, now I mean, now there's a back and forth on kind of how to do it because obviously, you know, my editors at the Post, if I have something, they want to get it on the Post website. Um, we want to draw traffic to the Post website because Twitter, you know. You have to kind of decide, is it something you can wait long enough to, to get up on the New York Post website versus, you know, being first with it on Twitter? You're always kind of walking that line a little bit. Um, but, yeah, it has changed uh, immensely over, you know, when I first started on the beat in 2010, Twitter was in its infancy, and I, I really didn't pay much attention to it, probably the the first two or three seasons I was on the beat, you know, it's just like, okay, it was kind of a novelty and 
you know, and now it, it, you know, all the new, the majority of the news is breaking on Twitter, but yeah, I mean, that's the line we're trying to walk is between is getting the news on the New York post website versus Twitter. You have to kind of gauge it a little bit. Can, is it something you can hold, you know, 20 minutes to get up on time uh, on the web? Most of the time it's, it's not something you can hold, but there's still that maybe 10 to 20% of the time where if you hold it, you can, you can get it on your uh, own newspaper's website before having to put it on Twitter. Yeah, I think the industry has certainly changed in that regard. Uh, but, but one thing that's still uh, pretty prominently featured is the art of book writing. And uh, one of my favorite writers is Ian O'Connor, somebody who I got to also meet when I went to Marist. Uh, so we're going to start to wrap things up here. Uh, Mike, we really, really appreciate you coming on with us. Uh, towards the end of the show, this is always the spot where we, uh, Nick and I, always allow our guests to share to listeners whatever they want, whatever they want to promote. Obviously, you have something to promote. Uh, you have a book coming out uh, next year, If These Walls Could Talk, uh, New York Met Stories uh, from the Dugout Locker Room and Press Box. Obviously, an assortment of great New York Met Stories, and you got to share a few with us uh, today on this podcast, which we're really, really grateful for. Uh, so we will allow you to go ahead and share whatever you want from the book, whatever types of previews you got, uh, places where you can sell it. Uh, but again, this was a, a lot, a lot of fun. We had enjoyed you have, having you on. Uh, we will hope to have you on again once the season starts. And, and hopefully with everything going on in the world with the pandemic, uh, baseball, hopefully We'll start on time. Hopefully uh, you can get back to some kind of normalcy, some kind of routine. Obviously this year has kind of upended a lot of things that you used to do. But uh, once again, really, really appreciate you having you on. The floor is yours. Go right ahead, Mike. Thank you for coming on. One, happy New Year to you and your family as well. Well, Happy New Year. And it was, it was, it was fun being on here and reminiscing about, uh, you know, going back all those years uh, to get started. But the, yeah, the, the two things I would say is one, my Twitter account is, NY post underscore Mets. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've tried to cut back on tweeting in recent years. Sometimes less is more, but you must uh, follow for all Mets fans. Yeah. And, uh, but the other thing is uh, my book is uh, going to be published April 27th, 2021. So we're under four months to go here. If these walls could talk New York Mets and then, yeah, it, as I, I touched on a little bit, it's, it's going to cover um, my two decades plus around the team, starting in the Valentine era in 98. And I, I talked, I got about three dozen uh, exclusive interviews of, of former players, executives. Uh, Noah Syndergaard talked to me uh, extensively for the book, uh, Zach Wheeler, and, and I think just about every manager. Uh, I'm trying to think if most of the managers of the last 20 years and general managers are in the book, you know, Sandy Alderson, Omar Manaya, Jim Duquette, Steve Phillips, Valentine. Uh, I did, I did not talk to Art Howe, but uh, Terry Collins, obviously. Um, so I, I think, I think it's a fun book. I, I think Mets fans, uh, Mets fans will enjoy it. Um, and I think it's, it's going to, uncover a few things that haven't been reported before. So um, 
Looking forward to the the section on Willie Randolph's firing in the middle of the night on the West Coast. Yeah, that's in there. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's some perspective on that, on maybe a story or two that hasn't been told on that. So yeah, April twenty seventh. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, Mike, really appreciate it. Uh, I would love if we could get Terry Collins to do the audio book of the, of the reading. That would be fantastic. <laughs> Especially the chapter on him would be funny. But I really appreciate it. Uh, we can re- we can literally talk to you all day here about baseball and, and your career in the Mets. So we appreciate your time. So that's going to do it for this episode for our very special guest, Mike Puma of the New York Post and Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com.